Father, we're thankful for the great um, mercies that you have shown to us and what return can we make for the constant and sure mercies that you have shown to us. Lord, we are recipients of your grace and like Job, we have received um, much good and at the same time um, much suffering and and we want to respond to you in ways that, that, that are pleasing to you. So teach us today from your word as we um, as we um, survey the text of Job and consider uh, the overall theme and, and how we can apply it to our lives. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're skipping ahead um, from Samuel and Ruth um, to, to the book of Job. And uh, we'll get back to the, the books we're skipping. Uh, so don't think that, you know, we're going to just work through this the entire Old Testament in chrono- or, or in um, in the order that it is in your Bible. Instead, we're um, we're doing it more along the lines of this this insert in the middle of your in the middle of your handout there, um, the Old Testament revelation of God. So it begins with the creation of God's people. The Pentateuch talks about how God created all that is and how He created His special people Israel, and then He establishes those people in. Joshua and Judges, and then there's a crowning of God's king and Ruth in First and Second Samuel. So there's lots of hope, anticipation. How, what could this possibly turn into? And then there's wisdom and praise of God's king in in the um, in the poetic books. And then it starts to decline and move backwards. Actually, and that's why you have this uh, this indentation as it is. And it's kind of the opposite of the one that's that's on the same indentation. So the crowning of God's king corresponds to the dis- disobedience of God's kings. So with all this hope in Ruth and First and Second Samuel, it, it actually starts to decline in the kings and Isaiah and all the prophets there as, um, as these kings often turn away from God. There are obviously some, some glimmers of hope with Josiah and Hezekiah and others, um, but for the most part, the kings are, are wicked. And, um, and then you notice the establishment of God's people, Joshua and Judges, um, and then the, the corresponding one down below, the disestablishment of God's people with Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. This is talking about the, the exile people actually having to be taken out of the land. So Joshua and Judges bringing them into the land and starting to possess this land, and then, and then these other ones are actually taking them out. And then the recreation of God's people. How is this all going to be restored if God's working to bring his people back to a place where, where he can be their God and they will be his people? How is this all going to happen? And so this... These books, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, um, provide much more hope and actually show how the people of Israel can get back to that place of, of prominence and that place of, of special care by God. So today we come to the book of Job, and, um, and um, this book was not written by a king. Um, doesn't have a whole lot in common with a lot of what the other things that we've said or that we've seen in in the Old Testament. In other words, it doesn't really fit into a chronological um, uh, line uh, of thinking, so you can't find exactly where Job is. Um, Many scholars believe that he was alive during the time of Abraham, so that would be around 2000 B.C., um, but it's not really clear. He doesn't fit into a natural, you know, like you find all these other stories about Ruth, and you can 
you can place them, you know, exactly where they are in history during the time of the judges. But for Job, it's um, kind of this outlier uh, of a book. True story, by the way, but but it's um, but it's not as clear where it falls into the historical period. Some of the reasons they think that the scholars believe that it happened during the time of Abraham is because of the way that worship happened. Um, Job actually worshipped on behalf of his family, not that they weren't supposed to worship, but he actually offered sacrifices for them. So this must be before the tabernacle was established, uh, so before the time of Moses. Um, most likely it was during the time of Abraham. It took place, according to chapter 1, verse 1, in the land of Uz, um, which is most likely in northern Arabia. And the book asks some difficult questions. Why do the righteous suffer in the same way as the unrighteous? Why, um, why might we be tempted to think that evil people suffer and godly people are rewarded with ease and comfort and riches? Why, why is that? Why is it that, that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? I mean, that, that's one of the key questions that we need to consider when we look at the book of Job. Um, there are so, psalms that help us think through these kinds of things, but this book is especially helpful in 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 um, thinking about this um, paradoxical idea of the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering. The wicked seem to go unpunished, and the righteous seem to suffer. So, how do we explain all this? And perhaps more importantly, how do how do the righteous handle this? How do they conduct themselves when they are in the midst, in the midst of suffering? And um, so, in order for us to understand that, we need to we need to recognize two important things. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. There's nothing uh, that happens to a wicked person or a righteous person that happens outside of His control. God is sovereign. That's one of the key themes that the author of Job wants us to understand. Secondly, God is good. We also need to recognize that God is loving. He's not punishing Job. Um, this is not spiteful. This is not some twisted way of uh, of some higher being that, that um, gives him some kind of a pleasure, some kind of a masochistic kind of pleasure to, to put pain on Job. No, God is good. He is loving. And we'll see that in the first couple of chapters. And by the end of the book, hopefully we're able to answer the questions according to the way, the way God wants us to answer the question, which is um, that that God is sovereign, God is good, that's all we need to know. We, we can't know all the reasons why the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, but we just need to know that God is sovereign and that He's good. So here's the theme of Job in a um, not very memorable and short form. God is completely sovereign over all the affairs of this universe for His own glory. Sometimes his motives, reasons, and goals behind what he does are not revealed to us. The thing to do then is to humbly submit to his sovereignty, not to grumble against it. Nevertheless, hope in the suffering of the righteous is found in the future resurrection and a redeemer. All right. Any questions on, on, on the introduction there? All right. There's a... Um, an outline on the back of your of your handout there. In Job chapter 1 and 2, this is kind of the narrative portion. God sets his plan in action. And then chapters 3 through um, 37 are all poetry. 
Now, this is not how the people talked. They didn't talk in poetic form, you know. Um, instead, this is the author's way of taking something, an a- actual event, and putting it into poetic form so that it could be um, um, highlighted. And so you have this first round of discussion in chapters 3 through 14 where Job's friends insist that his suffering is because of his own sin and that you must repent. Second round discussion, third round discussion, then two monologues by Job discussing his innocence, basically. And then Elihu comes in, and he seems to speak um, on behalf of God. We'll talk about that briefly. And then finally God speaks in chapter 38 through 42. All right, so let's look at that first section. Um, chapters 1 and 2. The story is uh, that we get a picture that Job doesn't get. We get a window into what's going on that Job doesn't get. So we get a window into heaven where God is actually speaking with Satan. Satan's known as the accuser. He accuses believers before God, and he accuses God before believers. You know, is God really good? You know, did God really say that you can't eat from every tree of the ar- garden? What kind of God is that? That's the accuser. Uh, Satan is his little subtle ways of getting us to think that God is not good. And then Satan accuses us before God, and that's what he happens to be doing in the book of Job, or at the time of Job, I should say. He's, he's up in heaven, standing before God and saying, God, the only reason that Job follows you is because you give him all these things. I mean, it's clear that he just follows you for the gifts. And God says, no. In fact, God was the one who brought up Job. He says, you know, have you considered my servant Job? Um, Let's look at that in the text. Job chapter 1. Job has all these things in verses 1 through 5. And you have all these angels come before God. And um, then in verse 8, as uh, Satan's milling around there, God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, for there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So not perfect, that's not what the blameless means there. It just means that he is upright, he's, he's um, living in a pure conscience, he's not um, doing anything that's defiling um, or, or purposely against God. When he does, he repents of it. And then Satan answered them and said to the Lord, verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? I mean, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. You put forth your hand now, but instead put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse your face. And and the Lord says, all right, verse 12. All that he has is in your powers, but don't put your your hand on on him. Satan departed from his presence and put all this trouble on Job. And then in chapter 2, um, verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around. The Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright man. In other words, see, I was right. You said that he served me because of the gifts. You took the gifts away. He still serves me because at the end of chapter 1, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And at the end of verse 3, and he 
chapter 2, verse 3, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And then Satan says, well, yeah, he's still got his health, right? Verse 4, put forth your hand now and touch his bone, verse 5, and his, and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said, behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils and stole from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself. And even in verse 9, when his wife tells him to curse God and die, Job does not. So there's the story. Um, the rest of the rest of Job is, uh, that, those first two chapters are really exciting. But then once you get into chapters 3 through 47, it's all just this long discussion between Job and his three friends. And then Eliphaz, or Elihu comes in later for his four friends. And um, and so there's not a lot of action there. Um, uh, so, but but there's certainly a lot of, of meat for sure because the the three friends are trying to help ask and answer the questions that we ask and answer are trying to answer when when we go through trouble ourselves. Um. So chapters 3 through 14, there's a discussion going on. Job speaks first, and then each of his friends speaks. Job responds to each of his friends before the next one speaks. So uh, basically, uh, to just help you get an understanding, um, Job's friends all believe that Job must have done something wrong. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. This is Eliphaz. He says, Remember now, whoever perished, who ever perished being innocent? And or where were the upright destroyed? Right? Has that ever happened before, Job? Is there any has there ever anyone who has died who um, who is completely innocent? According to what I've seen, verse eight: those who plow iniquity, those who sow trouble, they harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. And then skip over to chapter 5, verse 17. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. See, Job? Don't despise it. This is Eliphaz still speaking. And Job's two other friends agree with this. And so these guys have a mechanical and automatic view of the universe. A very, we could say a very simplistic view of the universe. The only reason that calamity happens to any person is because of sin. Sin brings judgment. Suffering is judgment. Therefore, you've sinned. Your sin is directly tied to your suffering. Now, there is some truth to what they're saying, right? Think about it. I mean... Um, Part of the reason that Job is suffering is because he's a sinner. But Jesus suffered as well, and he never sinned. So I think in, in some ways, Job actually helped set up, set up for us the idea that to be human is not to be sinful. Okay? It doesn't equate necessarily because Jesus was human, and Adam was human before, Adam and Eve were human before the fall. So it, it doesn't automatically uh, result the fact that you have a human being doesn't automatically result in sin. And and so we can't automatically connect all suffering to sin. That's just a simplistic view and actually a, and I'm 
biblical one. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 3. Here's Bildad, another friend. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against Him, then He delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, surely now He would rouse Himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. So Job, you need to repent. I mean, if suffering comes from sin, then sin requires repentance. You repent, you get your stuff back. You know, you get God's hand of favor. So there's this one-to-one correspondence between sin and suffering. And notice Job's response in chapter 10, verse 2. Job chapter 10, verse 2. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Have you have you eyes of flesh, or do you see a man how a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal, or or your years as men's years, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. So here's Job speaking to God. You know, friends aren't bringing a lot of help right now. And so he's, he goes to God, as believers do, in times of trouble. He says, God, why am, I, why am I going through this? I mean, are you not just? Am I not innocent in this hand? So why am I suffering? In chapters 15 through 21, Job's friends, um, Job's friends have another go at him, and he defends himself again. His friends say that his words are profitless and hollow. Look at chapter 15, verse 2. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? So again, this round of discussion, uh, Job does the same thing. He insists that he is right. Look at chapter 21, verse 34. Chapter 21, verse 34. Job says, How then will you vainly comfort me? For your answers remain full of falsehood. And you're making uh, illogical connections between what what is going on with me and what I have done. You don't know me. You don't know my heart. Finally, in their last round of discussion, Job's friends say that he must be hiding something. So in chapter 22, verse 12, Is not God in the height of heaven? Look also at the distant stars, how high they are. You say, what does God know? Can he judge through the thick darkness? Clouds are a hiding place for him so that he cannot see and he walks on the vault of heaven. So here's Eliphaz saying, listen, God knows everything. Don't hide anything, Job. There must be something. And so they continue to urge him to repent. And then in verse 21, yield now. In other words, repent and be at peace with him. Thereby good will come to you. So Job still claims righteousness in chapter 23, verse 11. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. Chapter 23, verse 12. I have not departed from the t- commands of his lips. I have 
treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. You know how much I love the word of God? I love it more than food. Job ends the discussion with his friends by concluding that whatever God is doing, mortal man cannot figure it out. Look at chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 12. But where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. And then skip down to verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. God understands its ways, its way, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. So Job is kind of at his wit's end. I know that I am innocent. I mean, yes, I, I'm not free from sin. He's not saying that. He's just saying um, that, for example, you friends aren't any better than I am. I'm an upright man. I love God. I love his word. I know God is just, and so I... I just don't know why this is happening. Then in chapters 27 to 31, Job ends the discussion with his friends by concluding that whatever God is doing, um, uh, it must be must be his prerogative, must be his choice. In chapters 32 through 37, a fourth friend comes in, Elihu, and he's not happy with anyone. He's not happy with how Job has requested a... a a meeting with God. This is pro- one of Job's problems in this whole thing, by the way. Job's not completely innocent in how res- he responds. We'll see that a little bit more. But um, Elihu basically says, listen, there's far too much gazing on ourselves, and there's there needs to be much more gazing on God. And so he gives four monologues of the greatness of God's justice and God's mercy. And so look at chapter 37. Verse 1. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose and is lightning to the ends of the earth. So, God does punish some, but actually in his judgment, in his the suffering that he allows, it's actually love for others. That, that when God roars, that in some places it's trembling and other places it's leaping in place. And so he concludes in verse 23, Elihu, The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is exalted in power and He will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. So, the reason I think Elihu is um, righteous in his in his speech is because God never condemns him. I know it's not the strongest argument, but it seems like what Elihu is saying is actually adding to the conversation, saying we're missing something here. There is not a one-for-one connection. The, the friends are wrong. And at the same time, what God could be doing, Job, is actually showing love to you. And... Um, and we can't understand all of his ways. 
That's basically what Elihu is saying. And then what God is about to say in chapters 38 through 42 is, is effectively the same thing. So finally God comes to the discussion. This is what Job had wanted. Job said, God, I, I wish I could have a conversation with you. I, I wish there were an umpire, someone who would come between us. And God says, fine, you can have your discussion. And yet God, it's not much of a discussion because God's doing all the talking. Look at chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord a- answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So the first question is a knockout blow. Job has nothing to stand on before the Almighty Creator. He has no ground for complaint. Who is he to talk to God who has made everything? Suddenly, Job realizes over the course of this speech that he's contending with things far bigger than what he has realized, and that's exactly what God wants him to see. Look at the questions keep coming. Verse 5, who set its measurements? Who set the world's measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Talking about the constellations. Verse 32, can you lead forth the constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellite? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, Job, so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that you may go and say to you, here we are. How about chapter 39, verse 19, more questions. There's questions throughout here, but I'll just highlight some of these. Verse 19, what about the horse, Job? Did you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength, and he goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground. He does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he scents the battle from afar. And the thunder of the captains and the war cry. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, or stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Job, do you even know how all this works? That a horse has so much strength and lack of fear when it goes into battle? Or the hawk or the eagle, do you know how all that works, Job? And what Job is supposed to recognize here is what what we ought to recognize, and that is that, that we are nothing before God. And God is, is dealing with hundreds of thousands and millions more issues than we even know about. So look at chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. So all this talk, Job, between you and your friends about what I ought to do in your life with regard to suffering, 
who are you to contend with the Almighty? God's saying, listen, I am majestic over all creation. I made it all. I know how it's all happening. You have nothing to do with these things. And Job responds, first, in verse 3 of chapter 40, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice I will. puts his hand over his mouth. I mean, what what more can I say? He's humbled. But then look at chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, because God speaks to him some more about some other great and powerful things that he has control over. And then in in chapter 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this? Who is this that hides counsel?
There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes, who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan? Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world. Things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. 
He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered. And yet, he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends. Because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life. And you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord.